Welcome to Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Jonathan Kasparik. He is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin, Waukesha. His most recent book is a biography of the famous Wisconsin politician, Phil LaFollette. It is entitled Fighting Sun, and it was published by Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan, uh, tell us a little bit about your personal background, uh, where you're from. I know you have deep Wisconsin roots. I do. Uh, I was born and grew up in northern Wisconsin, went to college at UW-Superior, and then uh, transferred to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where I finished a PhD in U.S. history. And I've been part of the UW system ever since. I now teach at UW-Waukesha. So for 25 years, I've been part of the system in one way or another. Tell us, uh, for those who don't know, where in the state of Wisconsin Waukesha is located? Waukesha is just outside of Milwaukee by about, I think it's 15 miles or so. So it's, it's one of the oldest settlements in the state dating back to the 1840s, but it's changed an awful lot since the 60s. Suburbanization has kind of overtaken and transformed what was a a small town into essentially a bedroom community for uh, Milwaukee. Is Wisconsin uh, divided into certain subregions? I mean, you often hear about obviously urban Milwaukee. You hear about the Driftless area. You hear about the northern area of Wisconsin, which is now kind of resort-oriented, but used to be forest, the cutover, as people used to call it. Can you describe those regions for us? Certainly. Um, The southeast is probably the the most populous region, of course, and it's dominated by uh, the city of Milwaukee. But in the, the latter part of the 20th century, of course, the surrounding counties have grown to be almost equal in population, a very suburban um, Milwaukee was the center of industry, of course. Uh, International Harvester, J.I. Case, and many others were prominent manufacturers. The um, Fox Valley region, Green Bay, Appleton, Nina, Menasha, also uh, industrial, later than the southeast. That was uh, largely paper mills. In fact, paper milling was one of the most important industries in the state as you point out, because of the cutover, one of the largest uh, stands of white pine in the world in the late 19th century and lasted about 30 or 40 years before it was completely cut down. Uh, So northern Wisconsin is the result of that. Uh, The paper mills uh, cleared that out. A lot of the land was owned by railroads that tried to promote it as excellent farmland. And most people who have lived in northern Wisconsin know that it's marginal farmland at best. So tourism is the big industry in the north now, uh, particularly Minocqua, Tomahawk, and, and, and those regions, Eagle River and Rhinelander. The Driftless region that you describe, uh, the most beautiful part of the state in my mind, that was the one part of the state that wasn't affected by glaciers. And if you travel around Wisconsin, the, the 
the impact of the glaciers is very, very evident. It shaped a very, very good farmland in the central part of the state and in the southern part of the state. And in the Driftless area, that is a region where the, um, the, the geology looks more like the American Southwest than it does the rest of the state. Mostly uh, eroded limestone. You know, Wisconsin Dells is the most famous part of that. They capitalized on the beautiful landscape for tourism, of course. Uh, before the water parks, uh, people came to see the, the natural beauty. And it was an area of mining. Um, the earliest settlers in Wisconsin were in the southwest. Mineral Point and Dodgeville were areas for lead miners. I recently, uh, well, I recently visited uh, Iowa City, Iowa. There's a famous bar there called The Mill. And many years ago, when I lived in Iowa City, there was a folk singer by the name of Greg Brown. And Greg Brown had a song called The Driftless. And that was the first time I had ever heard um, this phrase. And it turns out it is obviously very well known in Wisconsin, in your neck of the woods. But but uh, I wanted to uh, have you tell us about your experience at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, earning your Ph.D., and what kind of interests you had uh, as a doctoral student. Well, I was very fortunate at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison because of their partnership with the State Historical Society, which is was right across State Street from the History Department. Um, in fact, when the Historical Society uh, building was, was constructed, it was designed in a, a, a wonderful budget-saving measure to double as the university library. So it, it was a, a, a large library. It had, uh, still has one of the largest collections in North American history. And the, the State Historical Society has done an absolutely amazing job over the last century or more of collecting and documenting every aspect of American um, history in Wisconsin and the upper Midwest. So there was a treasure trove. And uh, being interested in Wisconsin and discovering the archives and all of the collections there, uh, I ran into the LaFollette family, which I had been passingly familiar with as an undergraduate. But I got into Philip LaFollette sort of backwards. when he was a, a character in a research project I was working on in a seminar on isolationism in the 1930s. And I discovered that Philip LaFollette was an advocate of, of avoiding getting involved in World War II and brought him into conflict with Franklin Roosevelt and, and his administration. So that's kind of how I got into uh, learning about Philip LaFollette and getting more and more interested in him and finding out more about him, and eventually it turned into a dissertation. Uh, Your story is very familiar um, uh, to me because I'm friends with a historian at South Dakota State University by the name of John Miller, who uh, went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the 1960s and was looking around in the historical society and ran across the La Follette papers and ended up uh, writing his dissertation about the Great Depression and the New Deal and the La Follette family in Wisconsin. Um, but before we get into the details of uh, Phil La Follette, 
Can you set the stage here a little bit for us, Jonathan, and tell us about the LaFollette family, big picture, um, who the major characters were in this family, and their connections to Wisconsin. And also, tell us about the name LaFollette, because that's sort of a odd name uh, for a Midwesterner. Um, where does that come from? It, it comes from French, actually. Um, LaFollette's ancestors were French Protestants and migrated to the pre-revolutionary United States, I think it was still a British colony, um, and wound up fighting in the revolution, and inspired by the Marquis de Lafayette, they changed the pronunciation of their name from La Follette to La Follette. So that's where the name comes from. Uh, it is an unusual name in, in this part of the world. The, the big picture, though, there are, there are very few political families as, as important as the La Follette's, uh, and for such a long period of time, we still have a La Follette in office in Wisconsin, a distant relationship. Douglas, uh, Douglas La Follette is the Secretary of State. Um, we have to start in the um, 1850s with Robert La Follette, uh, Fighting Bob La Follette, who was born in 1855 in Dane County, a little town called Primrose in outside of Dane County. And uh, a, a pretty conventional mid-19th century youth who lived on a farm, had a very, very difficult relationship with his stepfather, which becomes, I think, quite important to him uh, later in life. Um, and when he decides to do something with his life, he and his family moved to Madison. He is supporting his now widowed mother and his sister and decides he's going to go to the university. He has to spend about a year being educated enough to get into the university. He had a very, very minimal education as a child that he was busy uh, working. Um, while he was a student at the University of Wisconsin, he discovered that he could become a kind of a campus celebrity in the sense that he was a great orator. And uh, one of the greatest moments of his college career, probably the greatest moment of his college career, is when he participates in an interstate oratory competition, I think in Iowa, and delivers this great oration on the character of Iago from, uh, from Othello. And he is welcomed, but he wins, he comes back to Madison, and the crowds of university students come to the train station to welcome him home. Sort of like when uh, uh, the Badgers won the Rose Bowl, they, they come home and are welcomed by all their fans. So he realizes he has this, this wonderful public persona. What he really wanted to do with that is become an actor. Now the problem with La Follette as an actor is that he was short. He was only, I think, about five, four. He was quite short. And he was informed by a famous stage actor, uh, one of the Booth family, Edwin Booth, I think it was, took him aside and said that you could become an actor, but you're just too short. You're not going to have any kind of stage presence. So if you can't become an actor, the next best thing, I guess, is being a lawyer. So he enrolls in the UW Law School, um, gets a law degree, but isn't a great lawyer. 
he certainly can address a jury. But at one point early in his cases, um, the judge asked him, for example, if whether his client had been arraigned. And LaFala has to stall for time because he doesn't know what the word arraigned meant. But he <laughs> takes being a lawyer and decides that, well, boy, being a lawyer isn't quite as what cracked up to be what he thought it was. So he decides to go into politics. And the big inducement for politics was being elected Dane County District Attorney. It paid the amazing sum of $800 a year. The problem with running for Dane County District Attorney is that the Republican Party, which pretty much controlled the state, had somebody else in mind and the, the local party boss, uh, the postmaster named Elisha Keys, tells the father, look, uh, you're a good kid, wait your turn, we have somebody else lined up. Now, LaFollette, who uh, I mentioned earlier, had had a very difficult relationship with his stepfather. And so from a very early age, LaFollette defied authority. And this is, a, this is a continual aspect of his personality. He does not like having older men tell him what to do. So he goes over the boss's head, and he travels around Dane County. He goes to farms. Um, talks to the farmers, he can speak a little Norwegian, which goes a long way to ingratiating himself. And because of all of this hard work and traveling around and meeting the folks, LaFollet gets the nomination in the Democratic, uh, excuse me, the Republican convention and gets elected and serves uh, for a while as district attorney. Parlays that into getting elected to uh, Congress from uh, the congressional district that includes Dane County. And uh, begins a long political career. And so, uh, is Phil the brother of Bob, who you've been describing? Philip is his son. So, fighting Bob, the the, the Robert that I was just describing, married a very intelligent, wonderful woman named Belle Case from Baraboo. She actually goes on to be the first woman who graduates from the UW Law School. She never practiced law, but earns a law degree and actually keeps her husband's law uh, office going while he is engaging in politics. So Robert and Belle had four children. The oldest was named uh, Flora, generally known as Fola. The second son was Robert Jr. The third, uh, the third child, the second son, was Philip. So Philip was followed his fighting about the son. And then there was a daughter, Mary, born a little bit later. So there are four children altogether. When Fighting Bob died in 1925, Bob Jr. is elected to that Senate seat. So between 1906 and 1946, there was a Robert LaFollette in the U.S. Senate. First, it was Fighting Bob, Robert Sr., and then Bob Jr. from 25 to 46. Philip, the younger son who I wrote about, would have liked to have been that senator, but he was too young. When his father died, he was only 29. And of course, you have to be 30 to be a U.S. senator. Uh, you mentioned Baraboo. Last uh, summer, I was down in the Baraboo Portage area doing some research on Midwestern regionalism. And um, there, there, of course, were very interesting people 
coming out of that part of Wisconsin during this period of time that you are describing. And I'm thinking, of course, of uh, Frederick Jackson Turner out of Portage, August Derleth, uh, the writer, um, the woman who wrote the Friendship Village stories. She's in Portage. Zona Gale. Zona Gale. Um, so a very interesting cohort of regionalist writers from that part of Wisconsin. I'm just curious, uh, was there much overlap between that world and the world of the La Follettes? There was indeed. Um, Zona Gale was a very uh, strong supporter of the La Follettes. Uh, she was particularly close to, with Philip La Follette for a while. They eventually broke over um, some political issues in the later 30s. Um, but they, they share a common root. I, I think the reason why the Baraboo, Sauk City, uh, Prairie to Sauk region is so interesting, I think a lot of it comes from the, the people who settled there in the uh, 1840s and 50s. A lot of them were German 48ers, free thinkers. And so the idea of free thought and intellectual pursuits uh, very, very strong in that area. I think it has still the the oldest existing free thought hall is in uh, Sauk City. When the, the, the Follets very much part of that. When the LaFollets, um fighting Bob and his son, when they were running for office, running for governor or senator, uh, can you describe kind of the political geography of the state? Where did the LaFollets perform well? Uh, what part of the states were very much inclined toward them? And uh, what parts of the state did they have problems with? The, the key thing to understand about Wisconsin is how thoroughly the Republican Party dominated the state. The Democrats were a very, very weak second party and strong mostly in the Milwaukee area and to a lesser degree in the Fox Valley. And I think that's largely, those are the areas with, with larger German uh, settlements. So they did well throughout the state. The key contest was always in the, the nomination, uh, getting, getting nominated, and once they were nominated, winning as a Republican was pretty easy. One of the major reforms that Fighting Bob introduced as governor, um, he served as governor from 1901 to 1906, was a primary election. And he believed that voters should nominate rather than party bosses. So that's where we start to see a pretty clear geographic breakdown. The La Follette supporters who vote for La Follette in the primary are very strong in the western part of the state and the northern part of the state. And those are areas where um, they were very receptive to the idea of progressive reform. Those are the areas that tended to be hostile to the railroads. The railroads were the big sort of villains in La Follette's uh, narrative of, of the state. They were the farmers who didn't like having to pay the uh, exorbitant freight rate, discriminatory freight rates. So the idea of more direct democracy, bringing more regulation to industries was very, very popular there. It was less popular in Milwaukee, mostly because the people who really were inspired uh, to reform in Milwaukee were socialists. The socialist 
party was a strong third party in the state uh, in, in Milwaukee. So the Muslims never did particularly well in the southeast. They, their, their power base was in the north and the west. We are talking today with Jonathan, Jonathan Kasparik. He is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Waukesha. And we are talking in particular about his book, Fighting Son, about Phil La Follette. Uh, this book was published by Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Uh, Jonathan, how did uh, the story of the La Follette's end? I know that you uh, mentioned that there is currently a distant shirt tail relative who is Secretary of State in Wisconsin, but uh, I think most people uh, in the back of their minds think that about by about the time of World War II, maybe 1950 or so, uh, the La Follette's had kind of run their course in terms of Wisconsin politics. Is that an accurate impression? Uh, to some extent. So the La Follette's obviously were important in the 19-teens. When Fighting Bob dies in uh, 1925, uh, his son, Bob Jr., is elected senator in his place, and he is focused almost entirely on Washington affairs. He's a very, very good senator. Phil, the younger brother, um, is trying to keep that progressive coalition going in the 1920s, and it's really, really tough. Finally, in 1930, he announces that he will be a candidate for governor. It's the only way to get all of these different groups of voters to, to rally together as they need a La Follette sort of to support. So Phil is elected governor in 1930, serves one term, a very, very successful term, really. Um, he deals with the Depression in ways that later inspire some parts of the New Deal. Uh, Wisconsin becomes the first nation to enact unemployment compensation, which is a major landmark in, uh, in, in state history. Um, but he loses his effort for renomination in the Republican primary, mostly because of the Democrats. When Franklin Roosevelt is beginning his presidential campaign, there's suddenly this renewed interest in the Democratic Party, and the Democrats sweep to power in Wisconsin, don't work particularly well with the Franklin Roosevelt Wisconsin Democratic Party in 1933 is still fairly conservative and, and not particularly in with the, the, the New Deal, uh, which puts Phil in a really difficult spot. He knows he can't win election as a Republican. He doesn't trust the state Democratic Party. So he forms a third party. So between 1934 and 1946, Wisconsin has three parties. The Republicans, which are a conservative party, the Democrats, which are fairly conservative, and then the progressive party. And he serves two more terms as governor. Um, he loses his bid for re-election in 1938 for a, a variety of reasons and decides he doesn't want to particularly do that again. World War I begins in Europe and that becomes La Follette's new crusade as he, he joins the isolationists. And uh, he never becomes a, a full part of America first, but often speaks on the radio and in, in newspapers describing why the United States should be out of the war. And that discredits him to a lot of liberals. Some of his strongest allies who had supported him in the 1930s 
are really sort of shocked by this. And then they speculate that Phil has suddenly become um, very, very conservative. I think the real story is that he was opposed to World War II for the same reasons his father had been opposed to World War I. Um, he's just suspicious of uh, the United States getting involved in the foreign war that didn't concern him. Did uh, Phil's isolationism uh, during this era have any connection to the large uh, German population of Wisconsin? Was that helpful to him politically among German voters? I don't think it was. Um, that, that may have been a bigger issue with World War One. There was an awful lot of anti-German hostility uh, in Wisconsin in World War One. Um, the, the big reason that his father had, had opposed World War One was that he saw it as his banks and manufacturers were investing in Britain and France and basically were hijacking the U.S. State Department to protect their investment. Uh, I think Phil had similar suspicions. Um, I think a lot of Phil's concerns also were that uh, Franklin Roosevelt was moving the United States into war unconstitutionally. So we had a lot of, of concerns with cash and carry, with lend-lease, with repealing the neutrality acts that had been acted in, in the 30s. I don't think he was thinking particularly of German voters because German voters had never been that particularly important to the, the progressive coalition at all. One of the among, among liberals. One of the major um, impacts of World War II in terms of uh, Wisconsin politics was the rise of Joe McCarthy um, and his ultimate election to the Senate in the years immediately after World War II. What was the connection between, if any, between Phil and the La Follette political network and Joe McCarthy? Uh, that's twofold, I think. Um, first of all, in 1946, that's the year that McCarthy is elected, um, the Progressive Party disbands. Phil is getting ready to go to a big meeting to discuss the future of the party. He's literally, I, I heard this from his daughter uh, years later, he's literally getting his coat on and getting ready to go out the door to, to rally the progressives. And his brother calls and tells him to stay home because he, Robert Jr., wants to run as a Republican. So that sets up a Republican primary between Robert LaFala Jr. and Joe McCarthy. And to everyone's shock, Joe McCarthy wins. So that, that's the first connection, is Joe McCarthy wins by defeating Robert Jr. for the Republican nomination. And what was and what was the nature of that primary? What was the argument over? The um, argument, it was, it was a very low turnout. So it, it hinged on a fairly low turnout primary. Everyone assumed that Robert LaFollette, of course, would win. So a lot of people just didn't bother to vote, and everyone was, was shocked that uh, this, this relatively unknown figure from Joe McCarthy, from, uh, from Appleton, uh, won. Um, what McCarthy ran on was a hint, perhaps, of well, what was to come. His big slogan was that uh, Wisconsin needs a tail gunner. He had served in the, in the Army Air Corps and, and was known as Tail Gunner Joe, which I think 
probably overstates his military record by a good deal. <laughs> but that idea of having a military figure to stand up to the the fear of communism, and of course the little Follett's having been progressives, it was really easy to sort of depict Bob Jr. as somewhat soft on communism. Um, but the other connection is sort of secondary. All of those younger people, and these are people like Carl Thompson, Gaylord Nelson, uh, James Doyle, Ruth Doyle. These were people who had been part of the progressive movement, but did not want to become Republicans. So instead of following Bob Jr. into the Republican field, they move into the Democratic column, and they begin this renaissance of the Wisconsin Democratic Party and transform it into a liberal party based on uh, the administrations of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. Most of these young people that are the so-called young Turks leading this um, revival of the Democratic Party had been uh, employed in the LaFollette administration. They were admirers of Phil. I think Carl Thompson was in fact a chauffeur. <laughs> so, so McCarthy has this dual effect. He, he knocks out Bob Jr. from, from re-election. Um, but then that inspires, and, and McCarthy, fighting McCarthy and McCarthyism was this unifying figure for this, this new generation of politicians. Uh, lastly, I want to talk to you, uh, Jonathan, about your project, um, which comes after this era, um, the McCarthy and LaFala era, and that is the coming of William Proxmire, the famous uh, Wisconsin Golden Fleece Senator. And uh, we were both in Minnesota, St. Cloud, Minnesota, I believe that was last fall, and you gave a talk about uh, the political career of Proxmire and set the stage for his uh, success in Wisconsin. Could you explain to our listeners who Proxmire was and what made him successful? Well, Bill Proxmire is a fascinating guy. Um, he's not, does not, unlike Bill Follows, he did not have deep roots in, in Wisconsin and um, grew up in uh, suburban Chicago, uh, lived in New York. He moves to Madison basically to start a career because he thinks Wisconsin's a good place to start. So he's, he becomes a Democrat in Wisconsin along with those others, Gaylord Nelson and Jim Doyle, uh, and becomes part of this renaissance of the Democratic Party. Um, he is so important because he is absolutely tireless. He runs and then serves one term in the state assembly from 51 to 53 and then runs for governor three times and loses every time. He runs in 52, 54, and 56. But he, he for six years, he campaigns. He, he just never stops. He, he continues to travel around the state. He will talk to whoever is interested. Uh, he talks to, to, to civic groups. He talks to school groups. He goes on uh, radio shows. He becomes sort of the public face of the Democratic Party. And what he's very good at is reaching out to farmers. And I think this is the key part of the, of the Democratic success that begins in the late 50s and extends into the 80s, is that they work very hard to speak to the concerns of small town uh, and rural voters in the North and the West, which is the same 
core constituency of the Lafalas. So rather than depending on organized labor in Milwaukee or the university community in Madison, they're trying to convince these, these small towns um, and rural voters that they have their interests at heart quite successfully, I think. This really has a lot of resonance uh, these days, Jonathan. You may have seen the very uh, wildly popular, I guess viral is the term, op-ed in the New York Times last week entitled Why Rural America Voted Trump. It was written by a small town uh, radio newsman from Marion, Iowa, and he talks about the fact that he thinks that the Democrats don't have enough of a rural outreach plan. But what you're describing in terms of the growing success of Proxmire and and the Democrats in Wisconsin in the 1950s is sort of the reverse of that. They put a lot of effort into that, and it seemed to be successful. It worked very well. And I, I think that is almost entirely down to Proxmire. He recognized that as a requirement. And to be fair, they delivered. Uh, Proxmire was one of the most vigorous supporters in Congress for the dairy industry. Um, and he never let farmers forget who he was or what he would do for them. And he, he would go on long walking tours in the state to visit farmers, and he would work on dairy farms for a day to see what the job was like. So I think the Democrats uh, of today, I, I don't think that they're neglecting farmers entirely, but I think they're doing perhaps not a very good job of convincing them that they are, in fact, looking after their interests. We have been talking with Jonathan Kasparik, a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin, Waukesha. He has a recent book out entitled Fighting Sun, a biography of Phil LaFollette, which was published by Wisconsin Historical Society Press. I am your host of Heartland History, John Lauk. Our broadcast is produced by Dana Brown. Uh, please join us again for another edition of Heartland History in coming weeks. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.